Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. When the 45th President of the United States gets down to work on January 21st, 2017, the new Commander-in-Chief will face life or death decisions that will shape America's role in the Middle East for years to come. In this podcast series, Washington Institute scholars explore those historic challenges. As former high-level officials in Democratic and Republican administrations, our experts know the issues, the stakes, the leaders, and the players on the ground. Join us as we explore the Middle East 2017 challenges and choices. If people have principles they feel they can follow or a sense of where is it we're trying to go, then the types of policy solutions that they devise will knit together much better uh, and actually be much more sort of uh, rapidly implemented and more successfully implemented. So the first thing is start with a strategy. Today, we'll hear from Michael Singh, a former senior director for Middle East Affairs at the National Security Council, who is the Institute's managing director and Lane Swig senior fellow. We'll talk about American grand strategy and competition with both Russia and China in the Middle East. Drawing on his experiences in the White House, Mike takes us behind the scenes to explore not only regional challenges to American interests and the policy choices necessary to meet them, but also the personnel and management decisions that will help the next president avoid the blunders common to most new administrations. After this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. What are the most important issues that will require the next president's decisions in the first days of the new administration? Well, I think it's useful to review sort of where we've come in the last eight years in the region. And and I think that will weigh heavily on the next president, whoever they are. If you look at the region, uh, most people would look and say, well, this is a region in turmoil and increasing turmoil at that. Uh, U.S. alliances across the board are weaker than they were uh, eight years ago. The rise of ISIS in 2014 and afterwards Uh, is perhaps the most concerning issue for Americans, not just in the Middle East, but on the foreign policy scene in general. Uh, The Arab Spring, the so-called Arab Spring and the uprisings which followed in 2011 are still uh, weighing heavily on the region and its stability in places like Syria, Egypt, Libya, uh, even Tunisia and and the Maghreb. Um, And then, of course, you have uh, the role of Iran and uh, the nuclear deal that was reached in 2015, implemented in 2016, uh, was politically polarizing the United States, but hasn't really resulted, certainly in an Iran which is more helpful, more constrained, more constructive uh, in the region. And and of course, that deal only further exacerbated the pre-existing strains uh, in American alliances in the region. So so the next American president will have a lot on his or her plate uh, and a lot weighing, as I said, on his or her mind as they approach this region. And I think the first very fundamental question that they'll face is how much effort, how much, uh, how many resources do we want to devote to the Middle East in general? Um, Not just because of all these problems and their seeming intractability, but because of all the other priorities we suddenly have in the world. We have Russia uh, increasingly uh, belligerent in Eastern Europe, seizing territory in places like Ukraine and Georgia and threatening uh, territorial uh, gains, perhaps in other areas. We have China uh, increasingly 
active uh, and confrontational in the South China Sea uh, and in the East China Sea as well. Um, so that reinforces perhaps the tendency to say, well, perhaps we should be pivoting away from the Middle East and focusing on other areas of the world, which got perhaps less attention in previous decades. Uh, and you can see very clearly two different views on how important the Middle East is to America's role in the world, to American foreign policy. Uh, you can see from Donald Trump, the Republican candidate, uh, a very narrow focus on the question of terrorism uh, and specifically on ISIS uh, and really restricting America's uh, approach to the region to fighting ISIS and fighting terrorism. Uh, and then you can see a very different approach uh, advocated by Secretary Hillary Clinton, the Democratic candidate, who really it's it's almost a return to a much more uh, expansive, much more engaged, much more active American role in the region, repairing alliances, helping to promote uh, things like democracy or economic reform, and addressing not just the problem of ISIS and jihadism, but also some of the other factors in the region which are contributing to instability, and maybe even contributing to ISIS, such as Iran's role uh, or the failure of states uh, or the spread of sectarianism and so forth. Um, so, so these are the sort of fundamental issues that I think will then define the responses to all the individual issues. And those individual issues are manifold. So the civil war in Syria, for example, uh, which increasingly has, is not just a civil war, but is a war between regional states and even between outside parties like the Russians, will be, I think, the number one issue faced by the next president, because so far it has resisted any kind of solutions. The Iraq conflict, where we're in the midst right now of an Iraqi-led but U.S.-supported effort to wrest the city of Mosul from ISIS's control, uh, will also be at the top of the agenda. Countering Iran will remain a, num a sort of top-tier issue for the next president, and maybe an issue that the next president will feel needs more attention than it got in the previous administration, where the focus was heavily on reaching a nuclear agreement and then protecting that nuclear agreement. And then, you know, an issue which is not a conflict to be solved, not a, a problem to be addressed in the same way that Syria, Iraq or Iran might be, uh, will be the state of American alliances. There is a sense that the U.S.-Israel alliance has weakened, uh, the U.S.-Egyptian, the U.S.-Turkish, U.S.-Saudi, these alliances have weakened, uh, and perhaps a sense that overall the American alliance network in the region uh, is not what it used to be and needs to be reinvigorated, not necessarily rebuilt or recreated in the way it looked before. It's not clear that's possible. Um, but recreated to address the threats we see today. There's plenty of other problems on top of that. Obviously, there's a civil war in Yemen, which is increasingly vexing uh, for politicians in Washington. There's the conflicts in Libya, where the removal of Muammar Gaddafi has not resulted uh, in certainly anything positive from an American point of view uh, thus far. There's Egypt and its increasing instability and economic problems. Uh, and the list, unfortunately, goes on. With such an extensive list of particular uh, challenges, many of which do have massive strategic implications and are not just tactical questions of, of executing policy, to what extent should the next administration be looking at these in a regional framework or looking at the region of the Middle East as essentially a subset of an overall grand national strategy that needs to be formulated and acted upon? Well, I think you have to do both. At the end of the day, you do need to have a sense of what is your overall strategy in the world. And I think that the next president will look at the world and say, this is a world which is increasingly dangerous, which is increasingly disordered, where America's role is not as clear cut as it was in the past, 
where our power advantage over states like China and Russia and others is not as pronounced as it was in the past, and therefore one in which we expect to see a greater competition amongst great powers, a greater challenges to the international order, and efforts to revise or even overturn the rules-based order which we've relied upon now in, for, for decades, since World War II, really, and certainly since the Cold War. So how we approach the Middle East will inevitably uh, be seen in that context. And of course, Russia's entry into the Syria conflict illustrates that perfectly, how our overall foreign policy is not separable from how we act or how we operate in the Middle East. China is increasing its role in the Middle East as well. So, so I think that that context will have to be taken into account. At the same time, I think the problems in the region, uh, our interests in the region, really demand obviously their own policy responses, um, uh, sort of related to, uh, but separate from that broader context. And I think what's key there is is not to fall victim to, not to fall into the trap uh, of what some call solutionism, not to think that American policy should consist of solving the Syria conflict, solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, solving Iraq's problems, and so on and so forth. Uh, we don't think of other regions in this way. We don't think our Europe policy should be you know, solving the terrorism problem in France, solving uh, the uh, issues in Poland, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, we generally instead say, well, those are really... Uh, the region's state's problems to solve. And we have to think about how those developments and how they may develop further over the coming years will impact American interests. And our job really is to protect and advance our interests in the region and around the world. And so that'll require the next president to think about, well, what are our interests in the Middle East? What is the right strategy for advancing or protecting those interests? Um, who are the right partners for doing that? Uh, and then how do we actually go about doing that? And I think that they'll see that in a place like Syria, it's a terrible conflict. Um, it's one which has not been handled well by the United States or others, but it's also one that isn't going to be easily solved uh, by the next president. There's no silver bullet that will be available um, to Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton as they look at that problem. And so they'll have to think about how is it likely to progress and how are we able to influence that progression in a way which uh, not only helps the people of the region, hopefully, but also protects and advances American interests, even if that policy is not one which solves the problem uh, in one fell swoop. So, and, and that's, I think, the approach that needs to be taken more broadly. It is, again, not one which seeks to solve all the problems, but one which seeks to advance America's interests, which are shared by our allies like Israel, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, Jordan, and others to, to a greater or lesser extent. The Middle East seems to be returning to its early Cold War status as a cockpit of competition among global powers, with both Russia and, as you've written extensively, China taking more active and assertive roles in the region. Should the next administration regard this as a new reality that U.S. policy needs to accommodate and tend to, or a possibly contingent situation that U.S. policies should seek to reverse? Well, the Middle East has long been uh, a contested area of the world, one where uh, great powers uh, externally have come in and become involved. It's It's been a crossroads of empires throughout history, uh, certainly not just during the Cold War, but for uh, but for centuries before. And I think that's in part, in at least in modern times, because there is no hegemon in the region. There is no single power in the Middle East uh, coming arising out of the Middle East that is able to uh, exert control or is able to exert preeminence in the region, as, say, the United States does in its hemisphere, uh, and so on and so forth. 
Uh, and so that, despite that fact, the region is very important for outside powers and for the world um, because of things like energy and terrorism and uh, global trade routes and so forth. And so that has attracted uh, outside powers uh, to become very involved in the region. And I think that we are, we are seeing that today. Why are Russia and China uh, increasingly involved in the region? It's uh, not just, for example, in Russia's case to counter the United States, although it certainly is part of it. It certainly is part of a, a broader sort of uh, rivalry in that case. But it's also because they their interests are impacted by what happens in the Middle East, and they want to make sure their interests are protected. So if you look at China, a great deal of China's increasing involvement in the Middle East is motivated by its increasing dependence on energy from the Middle East. Uh, China is uh, going to surpass the United States in terms of energy consumption and energy imports uh, if it hasn't done so already. And the bulk of that energy, bulk of that oil and natural gas is coming from the Middle East, and, and that drives its involvement. Um, so I think the reality for the United States is that we will not be the only uh, external power, not be the only major power in the world that's interested in or involved in the Middle East. Uh, and we'll need to decide what are our attitudes towards Russia, towards China, towards Europe uh, as they get involved in the Middle East. During the Cold War, certainly one of our objectives in the region was to prevent Soviet or communist inroads in the region uh, for their own sake, for its own sake, rather, um, because we saw that as potentially threatening to our own ability to operate and to uh, protect our interests in the region. We'll have to decide, you know, does Russia's involvement in the region uh, in and of itself pose a threat to American interests? What about China's? Um, how do we coordinate even with Europe, which may not always have exactly the same interests that the United States does? My guess is that we'll seek uh, wherever we can to cooperate with these other powers uh, and not to turn the Middle East into an area of great power competition, um, which really doesn't necessarily serve our interests uh, um, uh, at all. Um, but that that won't always be easy, that as we see in Syria, uh, where Russia clearly has not only different objectives and different interests at stake than we do, but even the desire to thwart our interests um, uh, as a goal in itself to thwart our objectives, um, it's going to be awfully challenging in certain circumstances. I think that Americans tend to focus on Western involvement in the Middle East, whether it's our own various European commitments and engagements like the EU's relationship with Turkey, France's uh, relations with its former colonial states, even Russia. Are we missing a potentially important new story of Eastern involvement in the region, such as with China and, and even India? I think we are. And it's a story which I think will gain more prominence in the years to come, because the outside power with potentially the most at stake in the Middle East, besides the United States, uh, is China, arguably. Again, because of its growing need for energy imports um, and because of its growing economic footprint in the Middle East, uh, China is really undergoing a transformation in its approach to the region. In, in decades past, China's policy towards the Middle East and frankly towards other regions, they characterize as non-interference. Uh, don't get involved in the uh, big conflicts, don't get involved in diplomatic disputes, don't take sides in these uh, thorny issues. Uh, and in the Middle East, certainly, uh, there isn't a, a great deal of attraction to being involved in those issues for a state like China. And frankly, China was uh, content to, as President Obama and others have put it, to free ride on America's security arrangements there. They're happy to let us take the lead in providing security through waterways like the Strait of Hormuz and, and not get terribly involved themselves. I think a couple of things have uh, led that now to be um, changed or questioned, at least. 
number one is the the sort of level or the extent of China's interest in the region have uh, grown so that they find that simply sitting back um, is is no longer necessarily an acceptable posture. China's building its first overseas military base, uh, naval base in Djibouti, in the, the region of the Middle East. And this is prompted in part by their recognition uh, in 2011 and onward that they needed forward deployed forces in the region to protect their citizens there, their workers, their economic interests, and so forth. China has been involved since 2008 in counter piracy patrols in the region. Um, and as China has become more involved diplomatically and strategically, non-interference hasn't always been an option. Uh, it's hard to be neutral between Saudi Arabia and Iran, for example, uh, or to maintain cordial relations with both when you're a growing force in the region like China is. And so increasingly, from my point of view, China's taken the side of Iran in regional disputes. And I think we'll see that grow. We'll see that alliance grow as Iran comes out from under sanctions and as China's strategic interests in the region increase. Frankly, it's also abetted by the sense that America itself is stepping back uh, and so perhaps can't be counted on uh, as much in the future, whether by China, Europe or regional countries to play that security guarantor role, to play that mediator role that we have in the past. And so that's another reason why we might now see other countries taking an increased interest in the region. I think, frankly, this will also, though, come from the West. As much as we think about European involvement in the Middle East, European countries uh, arguably haven't been sort of uh, carrying their own weight in the Middle East. And, and I think that you can see that in places like Syria, where uh, Europe, I think, has come to the realization in recent years because of the refugee crisis, because of terrorism, uh, that it is much more effective, affected rather than perhaps uh, it felt it was in the past by developments in the Middle East, and that it's better to address the, these developments in the Middle East than to wait uh, until their reverberations hit your own shores uh, when it might be too late to mount an effective response. So I think you hear actually from places like France and Germany, uh, an increased interest in the region, increased activity in the region, uh, even Germany, for example, is now involved in military training missions in northern Iraq uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and I think we'll see that trend continue as well. If the lack of a regional hegemon is one of the factors that invites global competition in the Middle East, how does how does that play off the uh, the fact that many of our, our closest partners in the region um, see Iran as a potential or even attempted hegemonic power? Is Iran really strong enough to reach for or achieve regional hegemony? And how should the next administration formulate our approach to Iran, whether Iran really is or is not a true potential regional power? Well, we tend to think of powers as either status quo powers or revisionist powers. Status quo powers trying to maintain the prevailing balance of power and revisionist powers trying to overturn it or, or change it significantly. I think there's no doubt that American allies tend to be status quo powers. Um, and Iran is very much a revisionist power. Uh, it's trying to change the balance of power in the region, uh, and it's trying to do that uh, often through the use of force, not always direct force, but certainly force through proxies uh, and, uh, and so forth. I, I think Iran's main objective when it comes to how to change the balance of power in the region is less uh, sort of to control the entire region itself. I, I don't think that that's within the scope of Iranian capabilities and maybe not even in the scope of their uh, ambitions. I think it's to push the United States out of the region so that it can deal with other countries in the region basically on an equal footing rather than having those countries uh, have the, the backing of the United States and all the power 
that comes with that. And so if you look at Iranian activities in places like Iraq, for example, uh, while the uh, you, while the American army was involved in Iraq uh, after 2003, certainly one of Iran's goals seemed to be uh, to make uh, the, the American armies stay there uh, as difficult uh, and as bloody as possible uh, and to fuel this thinking in the United States that we should be pulling back from the Middle East. If the United States were to pull back from the Middle East, then you would have a very different balance of power in the region. And it wouldn't necessarily be one where Iran was predominant because other states like Turkey, like Saudi Arabia, uh, like Israel, certainly, are quite militarily strong and, and far stronger militarily than Iran is. Um, but I think from the Iranian point of view, it might put them on uh, more of an equal footing and might make it easier for them to uh, exercise influence and project power. So there's no doubt that Iranian activities are not only meant to project Iranian power and project Iranian influence all the way to the Mediterranean or to the Arabian Sea, uh, but are meant to make the region inhospitable to American forces, to the projection of American or European or, or Western influence in general. Um, and that's something that Iranian officials, especially security officials, speak about explicitly. It's not something you need to infer from their behavior. What weaknesses does Iran have that American policy could better exploit? Well, if you if you look at what Iran is doing uh, around the region, um, one thing that they have certainly done is they've uh, brought former adversaries together against Iran. And I think we see this most clearly in the relationship uh, that has developed over recent years between Israel uh, and its former Arab state adversaries. Um, it's an open secret, I think, that Israel is increasingly um, on the same page strategically with states like Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, Jordan, um, and uh, and beyond. Um, and this is uh, one of Iran's great weaknesses, that most of the other countries in the region, Turkey as well, uh, tend to see its activities as threatening. And this gives the next president a real opportunity um, to come in and sort of identify shared threats, whether it's uh, Iranian activities, whether it's ISIS or both, and to bring together an alliance of countries to, to do something to, uh, to address those challenges. Iran is also a state which is not a conventionally strong state. Um, we have a tendency to, to build up the Iranians in our rhetoric as though they're 10 feet tall. Um, but Iran is a state whose GDP is just 2% that, that of the United States, uh, very different from a state uh, like China or even Russia, whose uh, power both economically and militarily, um, in China's case, uh, is, uh, is much more sort of worrisome from the United States point of view. Instead, Iran tends to operate um, in the gray zone. It tends to operate via proxies. Uh, asymmetrically uh, using sponsoring terrorism, funneling weapons to groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, uh, deploying Hezbollah to uh, to Syria and to Yemen and elsewhere, uh, and taking steps like this. Um, these are difficult steps to, to guard against, whether they're happening in uh, Yemen and Syria or whether they're happening in eastern Ukraine or uh, or elsewhere. But they are things that we do have experience in addressing and I think together with our allies uh, could mount a more serious effort to counter. If our allies and partners in the region have become uh, more cautious or, or, or perhaps less confident in America's commitment as their partner or ally, is it sufficient for a next president to simply go to them where there are shared interests and say, let's do more? Or is the next administration going to have to take other preliminary steps to restore and rebuild confidence and uh, trust in, in those relationships? Well, I think our allies in the region are going to want to see action and not just 
words. Uh, naturally, that's true everywhere. It's not just true in the Middle East, but it's true of our allies in Asia and Europe as well, uh, most likely. At the same time, I think that they will be ready for a change. So, so even the words will be well received, because I think that there has been a level of disappointment across the region and again, globally, in the extent of American leadership over the past eight years. Um, you look at the red line debacle in Syria in 2013, for example, um, or the sort of hesitancy in American policy one way or the other in a place like Syria. And, uh, and I think you, you get sort of good examples of, of why these states have been disappointed. Um, so I think there will be a receptivity to renewing these alliances, to resetting the relationships and so forth. I think from the American point of view, though, clearly what neither Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton will want to do is to suddenly take every burden upon the United States shoulders. Indeed, I think we would like to renew these alliances, but also make the alliances more useful for the United States, get these allies to do more themselves. One thing we can say, I think, very clearly about the Middle East is that regional solutions to pro to regional problems are often elusive, that there aren't regional groupings or certainly regional forces that can go in and address problems like the rise of ISIS in Syria and Iraq uh, or the war in Yemen. And that should be something that the United States tries to address. So what we would like to do, I think, is get these allies on the same page uh, as us and as one another strategically. That probably means that we're going to need to focus not just on ISIS, but also on uh, threats like Iran. But then, to the but then to the extent we can, organize them to take multilateral action uh, themselves, which would receive U.S. support and maybe U.S. leadership as well, but wouldn't be uh, U.S. only uh, action. And I think there, again, is an opportunity for this, not only because you see these allies uh, working more together, uh, working more multilaterally, even in the absence uh, of a U.S. leadership role, but increasingly because of work that's been done over multiple administrations over multiple years, you see them more capable militarily, more capable diplomatically than they were in the past. I think the United Arab Emirates is probably the best example of that, but it's not the only example. Jordan is much more capable. The Saudis are more capable. Uh, and certainly Israel uh, over the decades has been transformed into a country which is a first tier military power. So there are this sort of raw materials, as it were, to perhaps build a more functional, more effective regional security architecture should the next U.S. administration want to do it. But that doesn't mean stepping back. Indeed, sort of empowering allies uh, and knitting together this kind of security architecture will be very intensive work, but it won't necessarily require the deployment of uh, significant U.S. forces or big armies and so forth. It sounds to me like you, you might be of the opinion that it's the, the, the current breakdown we're seeing in state system and, and the regional security order in the Middle East is something that, that could actually be reversed and put on more on, on stronger footing, restored. If, if you were to look forward four years or even eight years uh, to a subsequent administration's start, what would you describe as a reasonable best case scenario for American national security in the Middle East? Well, I think that we have three sort of problems in the Middle East, let's say. Um, one is the collapse of states and state institutions. And I think that this is going to require the United States to identify where we have willing partners and, and try to strengthen these states, strengthen governance, um, strengthen their accountability to their own populations, strengthen their economies. I mean, one story that doesn't get enough attention across the policy world is the fact that this is a region of the world, the Middle East, which has been 
um, really devoid of much economic or political progress in the post-war period compared to other regions of the world. And we've struggled not only to find policy responses to that, but to, to really settle on a consistent approach to this problem. But I think we can't ignore it. I, I think that we have de-emphasized political and economic reform as, uh, in American policy towards the Middle East over the past eight years. And I think that we'll need to, under the next administration, find a way to, to restore that as part of American policy. But again, as I said, with realistic expectations and with willing partners uh, where possible, places like Jordan and Morocco uh, and even Egypt to an extent, especially when it comes to economic reform. The second problem is the collapse of the regional security architecture, which previously was this sort of hub and spoke architecture where the U.S. did a lot, had great bilateral security relationships, but there wasn't multi much of a multilateral structure. Uh, and as I've already described, I think we do need to start thinking about how we design a multilateral structure so that you can have more regional solutions to regional security problems like Syria and Iraq and so forth. And the third is the role of uh, these spoilers who fill the vacuums created by these two collapses. And that's not just ISIS, which has obviously grown up in an area which is largely devoid of much uh, effective or accountable governance in Syria and Iraq, um, but also Iran, which is active uh, in most of the region's conflicts, uh, and increasingly external powers like uh, Russia, which has come in uh, where there was a vacuum, perhaps in international leadership uh, in Syria. So, so I think these are the types of problems that the next administration is going to face. And, and I think that there are solutions to all three, but it will, again, require keeping very much in the center of our policy what are American interests and where are the best opportunities uh, to advance them, not just now, but to ensure that in the future, say, come five to 10 years from now, we are in a better position to advance and we have better tools to advance them. So if you look forward four years, I think the next president will have uh, wanted to have helped the Iraqi government largely rid itself uh, of this ISIS problem. That's something that I think would be a, a good goal for the next six months, frankly. Um, but not just not just uh, having rid itself of ISIS, but beyond the path towards some sort of solution to its internal governance problem so that ISIS doesn't rise again. I think in Syria, uh, you'd like to see uh, certainly progress, not just towards not towards so much solving the problem, because I think actually Syria, there's more than one problem. Uh, you have one conflict in Western Syria where Aleppo is under siege by Russian, Iranian and Syrian forces. That's obviously a situation that uh, should be put to an end and probably requires a great deal more effort from the West to, to put it to an end. But you also have uh, air, whole swaths of Syria which are really ungoverned. Uh, and uh, when ISIS is uh, ousted from them in places like Raqqa, require, um, again, some solution for governance that isn't going to come from Damascus, where Bashar al-Assad is still in power. And so so putting those together is, again, going to be a priority for the next administration. And across the rest of the region, I think you'd like to see greater progress on pushing back on Iran's spreading influence and strengthening American alliances that have suffered, whether it's the U.S. alliance with Israel the U.S. alliance with places like Egypt and Turkey, where you have perhaps frustrating allies who are nevertheless vital uh, to advancing our interests. And you'd like to see increasing connectivity among them. That's It's all a tall order, but if you can sort of make the first steps towards a more successful regional policy, towards a more successful regional strategy, I think then there's hope that you could sustain that strategy, not just for the course of one administration, four years, which is really the blink of an eye in the Middle East, 
but over multiple administrations and put the United States on a better footing, not just now, but for the future. Drawing on 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 your uh, terrific experience uh, in the arena of of policy formulation uh, at, in the White House and in the Department of State, how are national security problems or choices formulated and presented both to the president and to principals within the cabinet? Well, you know, most most policymaking is by its nature reactive. Something happens in the world, uh, and then you uh, get the right folks together in a room and you say, "What on earth do we do about it?" Um, and that's just the nature of, of foreign policy. You can only anticipate so much of what's going to happen in the world. You can only be so proactive. Um, but when wars break out or conflicts happen or disasters happen, you find yourself reacting. But it's because you've, you do find yourself having to react to so much that it is important that officials, that uh, your bureaucracy have a sense of strategy, have a sense uh, of uh, a roadmap for how they should react and, and what are our priorities or goals uh, in general so that that process of reacting can uh, hopefully go according to some uh, some sensible plan. That's why I think one of the first things the next administration will need to do is to give to the bureaucracy, give to uh, its officials, uh, both at home and abroad, a sense of what is the strategy. What is America's role in the world? How do we see that? But in these discrete regions, whether it's the Middle East or Europe or Asia, what is it we're trying to do? I think that even if it's very general, uh, if people have principles they feel they can follow or a sense of where is it we're trying to go, then the types of policy solutions that they devise will knit together much better uh, and actually be much more sort of uh, rapidly implemented and more successfully implemented. So the first thing is start with a strategy. But then the question is, how do you how do you then make successful policies? The American government has tremendously deep and broad expertise and a tremendous uh, toolkit, a tremendous amount of resources at its disposal. But we don't always do a great job of of accessing the expertise uh, or using the resources and the tools at our disposal. Um, I think one key to doing that is, number one, to decentralize the policy process. Um, from all reports, the policy process under the Obama administration has been very centralized at the NSC. Obviously, the size of the NSC, the National Security Council, that is, has grown. And there are a lot of complaints of micromanagement from the center uh, by the agencies themselves. That's something I think the next president needs to put an end to. Reduce the size of the central staff, the National Security Council staff, and devolve more power and more authority to those who have the expertise in the agency, so to the Defense Department, to the State Department, uh, to those action agencies, uh, which really, for the most part, um, know what they're doing. And you wanna empower them, uh, make them feel as though uh, you trust them, make them feel as though you're looking to them for answers rather than handing them instructions to, to go carry out. Second though, I think that we also need to restore the concept of strategic planning, rather than always finding ourselves reacting to, to problems around the world, we need to think about how do we prevent some of these conflicts? How do we prevent some of these problems from arising um, by thinking about where are the sort of uh, danger points around the world? Where are what are the scenarios around the world that could endanger American interests uh, and then work towards preventing those scenarios or, or heading them off? I think this is something we, we haven't done very well. If you look at Syria, for example, there were plenty of people 
that warned that the Syrian conflict was one that could spawn jihadism, could spawn refugees, and yet we still saw inaction from the United States. There are plenty of people uh, who warned that in Ukraine, um, the situation there that was developing uh, could spark a Russian reaction of some kind. I'm not sure too many people uh, predicted exactly what happened. But Ukraine was still seen as peripheral to American interests. Uh, it was only once a crisis broke out that we find, found ourselves suddenly having to become involved. And I think you could you could rattle off other examples like this. So strategic planning will be very uh, important, I think, if we're to get out of a, a purely reactive mode. And then, look, I think, finally, the next president, the next secretary of state is going to have to take care not to surround themselves uh, only with sort of political appointees, not only with people who are sort of uh, loyalists, but also access the expertise of the career services in the foreign service, in the military service, people who have continuity, people who have institutional wisdom that they can bring to bear on these problems. So often we see the same problems, uh, the same mistakes arise in American policy over and over again. And that's in part because we're not necessarily tapping into the expertise of those who have been there and done that already. Uh, and I think that's one thing we can do. We did that well, I think, uh, to an extent under Colin Powell at the State Department. He was a person who uh, empowered his assistant secretaries uh, and looked to the building, as it were, uh, for its expertise. And I hope that we could go back to that model because, again, we have tremendous expertise in the U.S. government. The question, though, is as a leader, as a manager, how do you ensure that you're accessing that? Michael Singh is the Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director at the Washington Institute. During his tenure at the White House from 2005 to 2008, Mike was responsible for developing and coordinating U.S. national security policy toward the region stretching from Morocco to Iran. He previously served as Special Assistant to Secretaries of State Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance comes from multimedia editor Neil Orman. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music